All right, we come back to this book of Jonah. I'm super excited that we're still here. Uh, I'm excited that we get so much time in Jonah. I don't know if you are yet. Um, you know that if you went and read Jonah, it would take you about four and a half minutes to read it. And you would read the book of Jonah, you'd be like, why in the world, Bradley, all fall? And uh, it may be the case that the Lord is doing this for me. <laughs> and if that's the case, I hope that you are encouraged. But I'm, I'm convinced that he's doing it for us and that he's got us here. I've told you that the main theme of this book of Jonah is that God confronts us with his character and in so doing, he reveals ours to us. But that's what he's doing. He's confronting us with his very character. And in so doing it, he is revealing our own character to us. And the hope is, is that unlike Jonah, we won't end up in a question at the end. But actually, that at every step of the way, we would turn to him even when Jonah doesn't. Some of you have been giving me sermons that you've heard on the book of Jonah, and it's really fun to listen to those. I'm, I'm trying to listen to a lot of them. Um, I would encourage you, find sermons to listen to. Uh, Brian Loney, who is with CTK West Roxbury, and Roslindale is also preaching with me this, so we get together every week. You should listen to some of his sermons on this. There's one set of sermons that someone gave me that claims that Jonah is actually a parable, and he actually likened it to a comic book, um, that there were aspects of it that were so out of the norm and extraordinary that they could only be um, the flamboyancy of one who is just trying to attract your attention. And I want to tell you that I couldn't disagree with that more. I've told you that I believe that Jonah is historical narrative, that it happened. We not only get the reference of Jonah as a real character, you can go back and read 2 Kings 14, but with specificity, you're going to see today that the author uses every bit of language that he can so that we might rightly understand something not to just shock us, but to convince us that he knows us. Here's the main theme of today, all right? God knows exactly what we have done, but his response is rarely what we expect. That's the main theme. I want you to think about that. Remember, we're talking about being confronted by the character of God. God knows exactly what we have done, but his response is rarely what we expect. No surprise to you, three points. First one is evil's going to be revealed. All right? The second one is Jonah reveals himself and the God that he fears. Now, you may not have your order of worship in front of you, and you might turn to it and see the outline and go, Bradley messed up. He put a lowercase g instead of an uppercase g. In that God, in that Jonah reveals himself and the God whom he fears. I know it's challenging, but I meant to do that, and I hope I can explain it to you. And then finally, that evil is finally confronted. You know the book of Jonah. Jonah, God has come to Jonah, and he said, Arise, get up, and go to Nineveh, and cry out against that great city, because its evil has risen before me. But you know immediately what Jonah did. Jonah said, mm -mm. In fact, he didn't even say, mm -mm. 
he just went the opposite direction to Joppa, jumped a ship and took off, right? But we pick it up here where evil is finally revealed, where Jonah reveals himself and the God he fears, and that evil is finally confronted. Main theme, God knows exactly what we have done, but his response is rarely what we expect. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. The first thing that you and I would recognize if we were Hebrew readers is that this word evil is the exact same word that is used in chapter 1, verse 2, when God describes Nineveh and says, their evil as a great city has come up before me. Some of your translations might actually say, if you have different translations than the ESV, in that verse, come let us know how this disaster has come upon us. That's another way of translating that word. Um, this idea of disaster, of evil, probably has its freshest and clearest translation as that which is the opposite of good. Any activity that is contrary to the will of God. It seems an understatement to use the same word to describe Jonah's running from God as the evil that has risen before God of the Ninevites. Remember, the Ninevites are this capital city of Babylon, or of Assyria rather, this, this conquering empire, the world power at the time, who would flay their enemies alive in front of their people and leave them there to die. The, the, the idea that this comparison would be there seems shocking to us. Until we begin to understand that God in no way is comparing Jonah to the Ninevites. The author is in no way comparing Jonah to the Ninevites when he says this evil that has come upon us. He is comparing Jonah's actions to the will of God. In the same way that he compares the Ninevites' actions to the will of God and calls him evil. I want to let there be enough room that maybe the sailors do think right now disaster. Maybe they do. I mean, the commentators who, who choose to use disaster in some of your translations have good reason. But I want to make sure that we hold on to this idea that the author certainly is drawing a connection for us. The author who wrote in this original language that we would have identified those words. And I want to even encourage you to think that by the end of this, when the sailors cry out, what is this that you have done? They even recognize it, right? How does God draw out this evil? We're told that the sailors choose to use lots. This idea of using lots, we're not sure exactly what it is. It's probably an idea that you would write your name on a stick and everybody would throw their sticks in together and they would shake them up and they would draw out a stick and, and it's got Bradley's name on it. That, that's probably the idea. We see a lot of times when it's used by the Israelites, right? Did you know that the whole distribution of the land in, in Canaan was, was done by lots, by Joshua? And the distribution of the land was, was given lot by lot as those names were drawn out. It's also the way that God instructed Joshua to determine that Achan was the one who had stolen things from Jericho, therefore 
making the Israelites devoted to destruction themselves, right? He told them to do it by lots. But it's also readily accounted for in Scripture that superstitiously others use them. Sailors here use them. Even the soldiers at the cross of Christ used lots to divide his garments. But what the author wants us to understand clearly, and I hope that you'll see it by the end, is that God is the one who controls the revelation of these lots. Again, God is the one who is calling the evil out. He does it in Nineveh, and here he does it as well. Verse 8, the sailors look at Jonah and they say, tell us on whose account this evil has come. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? This is the opposite of these sailors hanging out on deck and saying, hey, Jonah, grab a chair. Tell us a little about, about yourself. We'd love to get to know you more. That's the opposite of what is happening in the midst of this tempest when they cry out and they say, why are you on this ship? What is your identity? What or whom do you worship is what they're getting after. Because when they sought to determine who was responsible for evil, Jonah was revealed. The main thing is that God knows exactly what we've done, but his reaction is rarely what we expect. His response is rarely what we expect. I want you to see in verse 9 what Jonah and the soldiers start to expect. Jonah reveals himself and the God whom he fears, right? You can read verse 9 as easily as I can. Let's look at it together. And he, Jonah, said to them, the soldiers, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah had all kinds of things that he could have responded that we even know that he could have responded, right? He could have possibly said, hey, I'm the son of Amittai, because that's true, it's who he was, and we know that he's the son of Amittai. He could have said, I'm from Israel. That would have been answering the country that he's from. He, he could have said that I'm actually from the tribe of Zebulon, because that was true as well. That's where Gath-Hefer is, the city that he's from. He could have said, I'm from Gath-Hefer, and I'm a prophet. He could have completely revealed himself. But that's not what Jonah does. Jonah rather chooses to say, I'm a Hebrew. A specific word used by non-Israelites to describe Israelites. You remember that in Egypt, the, the Egyptians called them Hebrews, right? And when they come into the land, the Canaanites are the ones who call the Israelites Hebrews. Either this concept of then referring to the other, those that aren't of us, or the idea of those from beyond the Jordan, right? Those who have come in to this land from beyond the Jordan, he says. In essence, the invaders to the Canaanites, right? And when Jonah uses this, he keeps the theme up that he's had all along. I am not one of you. That's not who I am. Listen to what Jonah also does. He reveals the God in whom he fears. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. He uses God's proper name, Yahweh. 
He says, I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Both of those are loaded, right? Who made the sea and the dry land. I fear Yahweh, the one who made the sea. Jonah is saying in the midst of this tempest, I didn't bring this tempest. God is the one who brought the tempest, the one who controls the sea. He's the one who brought it. This present threat is his. And then Jonah also says, and the God who made the dry land. This is a loaded word. We wouldn't know it. But it's a loaded word that either means the dry land as opposed to the sea from creation... But to these Canaanites, it more likely meant the dry land that existed as the Israelites crossed both the Red Sea and the Jordan Sea, getting away from Egypt and into the Promised Land. And do you remember when Rahab brought the spies in, in Joshua, and she says, we have known about you, that you are the people who crossed across dry land into our area, and our hearts have melted before you. And there's instance and instance and instance throughout the book of Joshua where this dry land is mentioned. And these Canaanites respond, these these pagan sailors respond just as the Canaanites did. They are exceedingly afraid. Jonah has said that my God is doing this and this God is destroying us. When he talks about the dry land, that is his expectation. And I want us to remember that this half-truth that masks as a whole truth is ultimately not the truth. Jonah says that he fears this God. And you really have to ask the question, does he fear him? Does Jonah fear God? Because Jonah disobeyed God. God told Jonah to do this, and and Jonah goes, no, I'm going to go do this instead. And yet Jonah says, I fear this God who brought us here into this land and is the God who you know as the destroyer. And Jonah said, I fear this God. But in his disobedience, we have to ask, does he really fear God? I told you last week that I believe what is uncovered in Jonah here is his presumption. And I don't think that this is far-fetched. In Nehemiah 9, when the people come back from Babylon and they get back into Jerusalem and they begin to confess their sins, they confess the sins of of their fathers, and listen to the words that they use. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed through them. When I think about how Jonah responded, I think about that. That presumption is a deep word. When I studied it this week, there were three things that really stood out about it. 
The first is it describes a pride. A pride that believes that there's too much in one's own favor. And especially in the concept of authority. Secondly, this refers to disobedience and rebellion. And then finally, related to that, is a willful decision to act against God. This is how Jonah reveals himself and the God whom he fears. The main theme is that God knows exactly what we've done, but his reaction is rarely what we expect. Here we see the way that the the sailors respond to Jonah, right? And this is what they do. Finally, and this is the last part, the evil is confronted. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Someone finally cries out against evil. But in this book, the crazy turn is that God speaks through the sailors to Jonah. And he cries out about the evil in Jonah. These sailors are filled with great fear. It says they feared a great fear. This is the God that Jonah describes, the God who wins, the God who destroys, the God who kills his enemies. That's what they heard Jonah say. And then they turned to him and they said, what have you done? Notice that in the ESV, the Bible that's in front of you, it says, what is this that you have done? Exclamation point. Not a question mark. Interesting. What is this that you have done? I think the translators connect it because they knew that Jonah was fleeing the Lord from the Lord because he had already told them that, right? That's why I think they used an exclamation point, almost like, look at what you have done. And this accusation is, is rightly rendered, right? The men knew because he had told them. But every other translation that I looked up actually says, what have you done, question mark. What have you done? And the interesting thing to me is that that question invites further confession. I thought this week, where have I heard this before? What is this that you have done? And it dawned on me. I heard it on the lips of God himself. The very question that he asked Eve in the garden is word for word the same Hebrew. What this you have done. And in this, an invitation for further confession. The sailors, Jonah, 
Eve. All of them said, we're doomed. We're doomed. God knows exactly what we have done. But his response is rarely what we expect. Look, you've read Jonah too much and you know the story. Jonah did not think, hey, there's some way out of this. That is not what Jonah has presented by the way he presented who God was. He didn't think there's some way out of this. Nobody on that boat said, hey, you guys keep your eye out for a whale and the next one that you see comes by. We're throwing him out because that's the best way to get rid of this guy and everything will be all right. No one thought that. Everyone thought we're doomed. But what did God do with Eve God recognized the reality and immediately though he cast them out of the garden he enacted a rescue and in fact we know that so well because Adam and Eve didn't leave the garden naked but they left the garden clothed prefiguring God's willingness to shed blood to cover what we have done. And as you fast forward through this mystery of the gospel, you know that you and I are clothed in Christ and his righteousness because God knows exactly what we have done and yet has responded in a way that we rarely expect. God is about to respond to Jonah with unbelievable mercy. But don't be fooled into thinking that Jonah thinks that. And I want to say that we will be those who show mercy to the extent that we believe we are those who have received mercy. Because God knows exactly what we have done. But his response is rarely what we expect. Steph Allred bought me a gift the other day. I don't get a lot of gifts, but this gift was great. It was a pink shirt. And across the front of the pink shirt, it has in bold words, have mercy on it. That's all it says. Pink shirt, white letters, have mercy. I love it. It's my shirt. And so, what did I do? Thursday night, back to school night, I wear my shirt. Have mercy. And I'm walking out of the house, and Louisa said, you're not really wearing that, are you? I was like, yes, I'm wearing this. Is there a problem? And I wore this shirt, have mercy, into the school. And I recognized something. One, I recognized to my own, like, I don't know, embarrassment how often I say have mercy. And you all know this. But every time something would happen, I would move to say, well, have mercy. And then realized it's written on your shirt, dummy. Don't keep saying that. That's the first thing that I realized. And so, you know, stand corrected, right? I mean, you got me. But the other thing that I realized is to whom am I showing mercy? No, honestly, stop. 
and think about this. Look, you've got to stop. To whom are you showing mercy? Because I am convinced that to do the, the degree with which we realize God has poured his mercy out on us through Christ, we will be men and women who show mercy. This table is God's mercy for you and for me. Because you will not change by learning something new. But you will change. And I will change by the Holy Spirit working that mercy into us. Let's get there as fast as we can. Let's pray.